Thank you, worship team, uh, for leading us in those songs. And just so you never realize how many of, uh, how much of Isaiah 40 is reflected in so many of our songs that we sing. Uh, these truths are just uh, are powerful truths. They're just, they're eternal truths. And uh, when you just sing them, it's like you are, uh, you are, you are moved to, to, to worship God. I love it. You know, the songs that more reflect, uh, yeah, at least <laughs> uh, the more, the greater a song reflects God, the truths about God, uh, the greater uh, it draws us to worship him. And that's because we see a greater picture of who he is. Wonderful. Uh, thank you again, worship team, for leading us in worship. I just want to give thanks to God. I want to give a testimony uh, just to praise the Lord. I'm healed. At least I feel like I'm healed. Uh, those of you who were here last week, you saw that I was pretty much barely walking. And God uh, answered many of our prayers and allowed my knee to get healed uh, through medical means. Uh, the wonder of med- our modern medicine. Um, so just uh, I'm thankful and I just uh, pray that uh, whatever caused my need to go in pain would not recur. But anyways, we're grateful. I'm just grateful to be uh, walking again. Just uh, wonderful. God is good. God is good. Anyways, uh, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me and join with me as we look and study God's word in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 31 is what we're going to look at today. The latter part of this wonderful uh, initial chapter in the latter half of of this wonderful great book of uh, describing the salvation of God. And uh, because of the length of the passage that we'll be looking at this uh, morning, I will read the text within, uh, within the sermon. So... Uh, we won't read it now. We'll read it as we go along. Uh, before we begin then, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for our time of worship and song that we just had. Thank you, Father, for the, the songs that, which drew us to uh, see you in your glory, in your greatness, in, your, uh, in all of the fullness of your character. Especially, Lord, in many of the songs that reminded us how you are the eternal God, the everlasting God. You're a God who is always there, who never fails. And we thank you, Father. And as we, and as we, just as we've been moved by the songs to, uh, to, to see you for who you are, uh, Lord, we uh, thank you that we, that we can now look to your word and in a similar fashion see more of who you are. Lord, as we've just uh, as we sung in one of our songs, Lord, humble us that we might see more of you. Cause us, Lord, to decrease in our own eyes, that, Lord, you might increase, that we would grow in a greater understanding of who you are, and that our understanding and our view of you would cause us to worship you, to trust you in the face of every and all circumstances. Lord, we pray that you would draw us closer to yourself as a church, Lord, as, and even as each individual has come here with uh, different circumstances, uh, Lord, each one designed by you to cause us to trust you more, to see that you are worthy of our trust, that you are a God who is whom, in whom we hope, in whom we wait, in whom we long for, because one day you will send your son back. One day the deliverance and the salvation that you promise us will be completely given to us in Christ. Lord, for that, until that day comes, we look with eyes of faith to you. May you cause us to see eyes with eyes, those similar eyes of faith now as we look to your word. 
glorify yourself. Speak to us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> there are times in life when the circumstances we face uh, seem so very great. So they seem uh, so insurmountable, so impossible, that even though we are believers in God, the followers of Christ, that at those times in our weakness, it seems like, seems like, is the key, that those circumstances are even too great for God. Perhaps you yourself are here today and you are in such a spot, an impossible place, where you're wrestling with doubt and trust in the Lord. And it is in those times, those insurmountable times, those circumstances that are impossible even, that our God, who, our God whom we believe in gives those times to test, to refine our faith. It is normal to wrestle in the midst of our trials. Do not, do not be discouraged if you, somebody, someone came up to me last Sunday after our message and just told me that he was wrestling and just work, uh, wrestling with his trust in the Lord in the midst of his circumstances. And I just told him, he was a young man, so I told him, good, that is normal. We ought to feel the wrestling, the, the challenge in which God puts the circumstances that we put us, put us in. And when we do doubt, when we do give in to despair in the midst of these impossible and insurmountable circumstances. The problem is not with our God. The problem is with us. The problem is that because we have somehow allowed ourselves to develop a low view of who our God is. Or oftentimes we might simply say we've forgotten who our God is. We've ended up in some way made God like ourselves finite in strength and wisdom or fickle in his desire to help or too far away to care. And so we doubt and we despair, but not due to the fault of God, but because of our faulty view of God. When overwhelming circumstances arise in life, we don't need more faith. God has already given us the gift of faith and it is a perfect gift. What we need is a higher view of God a clearer picture of the one in whom our faith rests. Today's passage presents God's people with a high view of their God. They're a people who, are found, who found themselves in, uh, facing impossible circumstances. And he reminds them that he is not like the so-called gods of the world. In fact, he reminds them that he alone is the creator of the ends of the earth. He is the strength of all who wait for him. He is the incomparable God. Before we look at the text this morning, I want to just do a quick review for us. Isaiah, as, you, uh, as we've learned, is about the salvation of the Lord. That's the main theme. Isaiah, for us, breaks into two parts. Uh, it's divided pretty evenly, just like our Bible is divided into two parts, our Old and New Testament. In the first 39 chapters, we saw God's judgment upon Israel's sin culminating ultimately in her captivity, the promised captivity in Babylon. The second part of the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66, is God's comfort, God's promise of restoration, deliverance for Israel. 
promising deliverance, first of all, from Babylon, from their captivity that would take place even 100 plus years later. But he would ultimately promise them salvation, deliverance from sin. As we arrive at Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah 40 is a key chapter in this book. It is a turning point. It is, a, it is the, the light at the end of the tunnel. It introduces for the God's people who are about to enter into captivity, who has had received nothing but promises of judgment, of judgment, of judgment, of judgment, that there is comfort, comfort for them. In verses 1 to 11, which we looked at last week, we saw that the, this comfort that God gives is promised to them. It's bound up in God's promises. And these promises that God makes to them of comfort is all centered upon one person. He is the Messiah, the Christ. He is also, as we learn in, in the passage, he is God. The prophets were to encourage God's people with the promises of God. And they were to give, and the heart of that promise is that deliverance would come to them through the Messiah, through the promised king, through their God. Jerusalem's good news that they would, that they would proclaim, would be as, which we saw last week in verse 9, is here is your God. Our God is going to dwell in our midst once again, just as he did in the Old Testament. He will sit on the throne of David. And this one who comes will be both sovereign Lord and he will be a loving shepherd to us and he will deliver us from our bondage to sin. This one is no less than God himself. In fact, we come to know by the New Testament that he is the son of God. He is Jesus Christ. Despite the promises of God, though, the Lord knows that his people will inevitably doubt and question his faithfulness, his ability to deliver them. And it's not just Israel, unless we judge them. It is us. We too are at times tempted and give in to doubt and we question God's faithfulness and we question God's ability to deliver them. Though we know in our mind otherwise. We know intellectually, but in, in effect, in practice, we, we've settled for a low view of God. In verses 12 through 31, then, Isaiah's vision turns to a defense of God, a defense of God, a defense of God's power, his God's character. The God who has promised comfort will never forsake nor forget his people. That's how great our God is. This is the great God. This is the incomparable God. You cannot make him like anything that we know in this world. And just, he is beyond even our highest thoughts. As we read this text today, we're going to find that rhetorical questions abound. You like rhetorical questions? You know, basically, the answer is basically those questions that basically say, uh, duh. You know, that's kind of like, the answer, you know, everyone, you like, duh. You know, you, you know the answer to this. Uh, yes, or obviously no. And we'll read it. We're going to find it just in this passage. And when you think about the rhetorical questions, uh, it is almost like if you're familiar with your Bible, it's just very similar to Job 38 and 39, right? And maybe I see a lot of you nodding. You, you just go there and say, well, did you, you know, measure out the, 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 the universe? Did you create this? Did you know, do you know that? And Job is basically left speechless because no, he doesn't. He's not like, only God knows these things. There are, as we look at this passage today, then, we're going to find two main thrusts of argument are made. 
this defense of God. It's a, it's a really, a, a, you can even say a, a court case against a great, great lawyer asking, uh, well, I'm not sure it's a great lawyer, but you're asking these wonderful rhetorical questions that lead the reader, the hearer, to realize that, oh, I've been wrong about God. Our God is the great and incomparable God, the eternal God. Uh, and I have really no reason to fear. I need to trust in him. So uh, these, uh, these two th- main thrusts of argument are, can be summarized by two questions. I'll make, I put, and I try to put them in, uh, uh, as two rhetorical questions that we find in the text. So these two questions form our outline, and we'll look at then these two rhetorical questions that remind God's people of their incomparable God who will save them. Let's take a look then at these two questions. The first rhetorical question, which we'll spend, which is the most of our time in, is actually the bulk of our text, is in verses 12 through 26. And the first rhetorical question is, to whom will you liken God? Or really, you could ask in our own modern day language, who's like God? Who would you compare to God? But to whom will you liken God is the, is the rhetorical question. Is that the answer is really no one. There's no one you can compare God to. To try to even describe God, well, he's like, you know, um, <laughs> he's like um, the, the strongest man on the earth or the, the most intelligent person on the earth. Or he's like the, the oceans or the, he's like the, the sky. He's like air. To try to use anything to describe him or to liken him to is to fall short even. You know, the challenge, but yet the challenge of living in our material, uh, physical world is that we are limited by our finiteness to think of our God basically in terms of the things we observe. You know, kind of, I just kind of, uh, we, we learn things, we strive, oh, this is like that. This is, oh, this, uh, uh, this is related to that. Okay, I see what light is, so I, I know what dark is because it's the absence of light. And, and that's kind of how we think of our world. We come to understand things, but in relation to the other things that we observe. And this is understandable. Yet in every case, when we liken our creator to anything in creation, we run the risk of thinking less of our God. Or in other words, we run the risk of developing a low view of God. Now, it's not necessarily wrong to try to use some of uh, the elements of uh, creation to, to describe God in some way, and it will always be imperfect. But we must remember that even that is not quite there. It's not even close. In the following verses, God is shown incomparable to the things of this world, to creation, and, uh, and, and other things within creation. And so we might ask ourselves, and so we see in these following verses then, these things that if we, that we would, uh, would you like, that God is incomparable toward, towards. And that is, you cannot God, compare God to creation. Creation. We find this in verse 12 to 17. Let's look at verse 12 then. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? The, the questions here convey that really you cannot compare God to creation because he is our creator. The pictures here are all figurative. They're not literally uh, what God does, but they're picture, figurative of God's greatness over creation. These are described some of the great, the big things of, of the world, the things that were created in the very beginning, those first six days. These things were, uh, are existed uh, 
existed from the very beginning of creation. And if we were to compare them to God, we would see that even they pale in comparison. God is much greater than these things. You think about the first thing that, that, uh, they, uh, that then uh, took place was this, this waters in the world, that waters that would be separated in the world. But if we were to take all the waters of the world, well, how would that be compared to God? Well, <laughs> it's compared like the hollow of his hand. The hollow of his hand is like this little indentation of your hand, right? I, uh, that's what all the waters of our world, our planet is like, what, 75% water? All the waters of this world is like, to God, like this little hollow here. Incomparable, right? It's nothing to him. What about uh, the heavens, all the skies? If you look up in the sky, you look what we see with our eyes, or even if we could look with our, our, mic- our not microscopes, but our, teles- our telescopes, you know, uh, yes, to, into far off into space. What would that be like? It would be like this to God. The span of his hand, the, the distance between his thumb and his finger. This is the skies. This is the skies to God. What about, I mean, look at all the dust of the earth, everything, not all the land masses, all the, the dust in this world, and put them all together. Well, what are they? They're like, a, they're like a measure to God. They're like a peck measure. Something that you just carry around like a measuring cup. What about the mountains and the hills? All these mountains, the, the Mount Everest of this world, you know, how, what would they all be to God? They are nothing because he just weighs them in a balance. They're small things to him. They, they fit on scales to him. The, so you see here, just the, the, the pictures here describe and show us to us how great our God is. You know, when you and I look at the wonders of our world, we, we're in awe, right? We, we live in one of the one most, one of the wonderful things about San Francisco. We live near, near the ocean, you know, I lived in Seattle for a long time, and, you know, three hours of the ocean. We'd go out of the ocean, and like, wow, you know, wow. You know, it's crazy. This is the ocean. We just, we just take it for granted because it's just right there. But we meditate upon the ocean. It's a vast ocean. It's far. You can just keep going and going, and you can just, you don't have to go too far, go too far and you basically all you see is water. And, that's, and you're barely even in the ocean, farther and deeper in the ocean yet. That's how vast the ocean, and then it's not just vast, but it's vast in its depths too. And it's not just one ocean, many oceans all across the world. We, we're awed by these things. The skies, just look at the stars. And we would be amazed. The Grand Canyons of our world, the Mount Everest of our world, all of them cause us to be awed. But when it's compared to God, there are nothing. Our God is even more awesome, is the point here. Verse 13 and 14. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Verse 13 to 14. Show God's infinite knowledge in creation. He needed no one to teach him or counsel him how to create the world. Did anyone direct the Holy Spirit who was over the waters of the deep in creation? to say, oh, you go there. No, now you go here. And then you go here. And yeah, that's how you make the waters of the world. No, the Holy Spirit knew what to do. Did anyone give him counsel? No. Has God ever sought a consultant? Well, let me see. I want a uh, creator's uh, consultant service. No. Okay. No. Did anyone instructed God? Well, God, you need to do it this way. No. God's knowledge is incomparable. How much knowledge is needed to build a, a Tesla? You guys, some drive a Tesla? How many of us could probably build a Tesla from scratch? 
Okay. How many of us could build an iPhone? A lot of us have iPhones, so a fantastic phone. You, any of you guys can build that from scratch? You know, we could put our minds together. We get our church together. Some of you guys are engineers, so you probably could. I actually have thinking. But we might put our minds together. We would watch a little Google, Google it, YouTube it maybe. And maybe we could put together a Tesla. Maybe. I'm not sure. I'm like, look at our mechanic and think, can we do it? I don't know. Uh, could, we do it? could we put together an iPhone? Maybe with a lot of effort, right? A lot of concerted effort. But God created the whole universe with consulting no one, with no one instructing, no one teaching him. This is our amazing God. God did it all by himself. How great and infinite is knowledge. What he must know to do what he does. There's nothing that he does not know. Verse 15 to 17, as we get to it, can, can, and can be seen almost as a new section, and it's interpreted that way by some. But when we remember that man is the height of God's creation, we can see the theme of creation continued here. That God is greater than the collective strength of men as reflected in the nations. Look at verse 15 to 17 then. Behold, the, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Verse 15 here, the, the nations, the, the, when, when nations get together, it reflects the strength of man. They're pictured as a, a drop of water from the bucket. <laughs> a speck of dust on the scale. I love this picture because, you know, when you go wash your car, you fill your bucket with water, and you, you carry it out, you can, and you can splash a little bit, and a little drop falls out. You, you go, oh, no, I, I lost that drop of water. Let me get, I need to wash my car with that. No, it's a drop of water. You just leave it, right? You have a whole mess of drop of waters. All you care is about the But that's what the nations are like. The inconsequential drop from the bucket. It's amazing. Our God. The islands, that's the, the coastal nations, the, some of the, the nations that, that have far reach, uh, they're like fine dust. What's more, in verse 16, the worship of the nations falls short of his worthiness to be worshipped. Lebanon was a nation that was known for their, their tall uh, cedars, their, the cedars of Lebanon, right? And, and God says, even if all the trees of Lebanon were burned up, all the animals in Lebanon, all the beasts were used for a burnt offering, that all together would be inadequate. Man's worship is inadequate. And then so God summarizes the, inadequ- the, uh, the inadequacy of the nations in verse 17. Now, all nations are, are nothing before him. Nothing. But man still, right? We trust in nations. We look at nations and we think they're great. We think they're, they're things to be feared even. A lot of our focus recently has been on, uh, as in our news, has been on the nation, a little tiny nation even, called North Korea, right? You guys have been following the news? And we look at North Korea and, they, you know, they, of course they, want, they are trying to develop a, a uh, nuclear weapon that can travel intercontinentally and uh, strike us, uh, strike the United States and, and things like that. But once they do that, uh, they will become one of the, you know, big players of this world. They're going <coughs> to be like among the, the nations like the United States, China, Russia, France, and the UK. But all these nations, even though they have military nuclear might, they are nothing before God. They're, 
altogether a drop in the bucket. A drop in the bucket. A drop from the bucket. For Judah, time and time again, the Israelites, they put their trust in the surrounding nations for protection. They would look to Egypt. They would look to Assyria. They would look to Babylon. They would look to uh, uh, Syria at times. They mistakenly thought that God was not stronger than the nations. That their God whom they worshipped was inadequate for their troubles. And they would turn to the nations because they think, well, when we compare God to the nations, oh, obviously the nations are greater. So let's go to the nations. Let's go to the nations for help. But neither the nations nor anything in creation comes close to the power and knowledge of God. And so you cannot compare God with creation whether it's the, the, uh, whether the, natural, uh, the natural elements of creation or mankind itself. In verse 18 to 21, the prophet also then challenges the Israelites and challenges us that we would not liken God to the idols of this world, the false gods of this world in verse 18 to 20. We'll read verse 18 to 20. To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. (laughs) You read this and you laugh. It's kind of funny almost. But there are many in those days, and even today, who would compare God, who would see him as equal or similar to the idols and the gods of this world. They see him on par with all the other gods. For Israel, they, of course, they, they, they were known, notorious for worshiping the other gods of the nations. Uh, one of the kings uh, uh, was so enamored with the worship of uh, the Babylonians that they made a, an, a copy of the altar in Babylon and made a created one in Jerusalem. But verse 19 shows the idol for what it is when you try to compare with God. Verse 19 shows us that an idols are simply those things that are created by man. In fact, to create an idol, you need great skill to cast it, to plate it, to fashion it. That's if you're rich. The more extravagant, you can make the, your God and your idol. But if you're poor, well, you can make a God too. You can make your idol, but you will get some, use wood. And just make sure you choose a wood that won't rot. And then when you, get, you hire someone to, to craft that wood, and, and then, of course, most importantly, make sure that that wood, that idol, won't fall over. The irony is thick in this, isn't it? You, you create a, 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 a manifestation of your God, and you want to make sure it doesn't fall over. It's created by men. These things depend upon man to be created. They depend upon man to look glorious. They, de- <coughs> they depend upon man to not fall over. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> In Habakkuk chapter two, verse eighteen and nineteen, this this idea is, is uh, even um, further elaborated upon. Habakkuk says, "What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood?" For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he, fans- when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside of it. It's, 
And God's word just lays it out clear. This is the reality about idols, about these false gods whom the surrounding nations worship. When a man trusts in God, he is trusting in his creator who is absolutely independent and does not need a man for anything. But when a man trusts in an idol, he is trusting in his own creation, a creation that is actually dependent upon man. How trustworthy is that kind of a God? God is the only one who is truly worthy of man's man's dependence. For Israel, they had turned away to other gods, but God warns them to not mistakenly treat their God as if he is just like their idols, just to be compared with the other gods of this world. Say, oh, no, we like this God here. We like this God Dagon, or we like this God Chemosh. We like these other other gods. We like the the Baal better than, than God. We compared it. It's like comparative religion, you know? It's like when you go to, you say, oh, I've compared all the religions. I've come to realize that Christianity is the best. No. Do not do that. Do not say that. Say that it brings dishonor. Intellectually, I know you're, being, you're trying to be honest. But what you're trying to do is you bring God down. As if he is compared to God. You will come to realize the truth of God, the truth of Scripture, because you've come and met and been re- his, your eyes have been opened because he has revealed his truth to you in his word. The, the one creator God has revealed himself to you and you're awed by his reality and his existence and you cannot do anything else but submit to him. That is how you come to Christ and to God. The one true and living God is the one whom the people of God are to put their trust in. Don't compare him to the idols. Verses 21 to 24 then, we see a third area that God is likened to by the Israelites. The incomparable God is not, cannot be likened to the rulers of this world. The people of God put their trust in their rulers and their princes and their judges. Verse 21, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? <laughs> sounds like a parent here, you know, to, to their children. Didn't I tell you this already? Don't you know this? The people of God are challenged to consider what they know and, and have learned already about their God. This is not this is something that's new, should not be new to them. Again, they are, it is because they've had a wrong view of God, a low view of God that leads them away from trusting him. Verse 22 then describes God. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Uh, we just love the, uh, just the reference to the, the circle of the earth. Uh, either uh, it could refer to the, the horizon that's circular or the fact that earth is circular. But no, whatever ex- the exact reference there, God sits above it. God sits above the earth. He rules from heaven he sees all of us upon the world, and when he looks upon us, what do we look like to him? Grasshoppers. I love this illustration. Next time you see grasshoppers, worship God, because that's a picture of you before God, you know. We're just grasshoppers. Grasshoppers. And they love grasshoppers because some grasshoppers jump a little higher than others. And that's the great ones, the strong ones, the mighty ones. You know, some grasshoppers are able to leap, you know, several feet over. But that, we're just simply grasshoppers still. That's mankind to God. God stretches the heavens. He spreads them out. He dwells in heaven above. Not on the ground like the grasshoppers. He rules over the ruler. And he, from heaven, he rules over the rulers of this world. That's, this is our great God. 
Verse 23, he it is who reduces the rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. God is sovereignly in control over all the rulers and judges of this world. That's a wonderful truth. Very comforting truth. From man's perspective, rulers and judges are extremely significant, aren't they? To us, so much depends upon who sits in the Oval Office or who sits upon the Supreme Court bench. In comparison, though, to God, those who sit in the Oval Office, those who sit upon the Supreme Court bench are grasshoppers. They're grasshoppers. They're here today, gone tomorrow. They're likened to, to plants, in fact, in verse 24. They, they, they rise, they, they're barely planted, they're barely here, and then God blows upon them and, and they're gone. They wither. And then they're carried away like stubble, leftovers from the harvest. For Israel, their trust in their rulers and judges, they, and, and judges, instead of God, left them on shaky ground. When they heard the promise of God. For if God is like their earthly rulers and judges, then they thought that perhaps God is like their rulers, selfish or fickle, and would only keep his promises if it suited him, if he wanted to, if it, you know, if it was convenient, if he was somehow able to do it, he might. Or perhaps God will not be available to save them, is what they thought, like their rulers. But the incomparable God, who is far greater than earthly rulers, will neither change his mind nor will he be absent in the time of deliverance. He can and he will deliver because he is sovereign God. He is greater than our rulers, greater than our princes. He is the one who sits above the circle of the earth. He's in control of all things. He sees all things. One last comparison that we, mankind likens God to in, in, in error is that they will liken God to the stars, in verse 25 and 26. Verse 25. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Verse 25 is the, the key verse that identifies Israel's problem. They basically had tried to equate God, liken God with creation, with the things of this world, the things of this earth. And when they did that, they minimized God. And almost as an added rebuke, he's causing the Holy One of God. To who can you liken me to be equal, says the Holy One. The very phrase, the Holy One, describes the one who is set apart, the one who is unlike anything in this world. He is the incomparable God. So why do you compare him then to, the, to creation, to liken him to the rulers of this world, to the creation of this world, to uh, the nations of this world, to the stars even of this universe? No one, nothing comes close to being equal with God. Don't even try to compare. The stars are mentioned here because in, the, in Babylonian religion, and stars were part of their worship. They were seen as divine. They were involved in reading the stars, looking to the stars for, for insight, for wisdom, for knowledge. And there were some who compared God to the stars. 
When you and I look up into the stars at night, well, not here. Well, they, you can barely see anything. But I just saw this beautiful photo uh, taken at Mount Hope, by the way, this past week. It's like when I, I saw the photo, I was like, wow, there are a lot of stars up there. I was like, man. It reminded me again of when you go camping and you get to see the, the light and you're just like, how awesome it is. There are innumerable stars. I mean, it, I can imagine it's just trying to count them. I would probably, you'd just not be able to count them all. And yet, all those stars, every single one of them, God leads them forth by, num- by number. That is, he knows each one. He places them each where they are. He, he leads them out. And then kind of the idea is that they move, you know, because the stars kind of move across our, 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 uh, our, nights, our nightscape as, uh, as the seasons pass. And then he calls them all by name. He knows everyone by name. We give them names. We call them this or that. And we have different uh, names for our stars. But God knows them all. Because he is of his greatness and his strength. And not a single one of them is missing. God, there's not a single star. And he doesn't miss them because he created them. He knows every one of them. He hasn't lost them, forgotten them. Is a demonstration of God's greatness and God's power. And such truth is great comfort when we know, uh, when we are in the midst of trials and struggles. Because God, who rules, God is the one who rules over the stars themselves. He knows them all by name. He does not forget nor lose a single one. How much more then does he know the names of those created in his image? You, me. And moreover, he himself will not forget you. He will not lose you. He will keep his promises to every single one of his people. That's our God. Now, since the Lord is the incomparable God, then that should impact then how one trusts in him. And this leads to our second rhetorical question. That reminds God's people of their incomparable God. So first we ask, to whom will you liken God? No one. Second question is, do you not know your God? Do you not know your God? Again, we saw this early in in one of the previous verses. We're going to see it again here in verse 28. Look at verse 27. The incomparable God who has just been expounded is now applied to the circumstances of the Israelites, to their life. So why do you say, O Jacob, a, a challenge to Jacob, to Israel, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. Here explicitly is made. God challenged, calls out Israel. It says, they are doubted. They have, tr- lack tr- they have not trusted in their God. They basically have basically said, oh, God's, God doesn't see me. God doesn't notice me. He's forgotten me. They've complained. They're complaining that God again has left them. When you think of this, particularly in, in those who are in the Babylonian captivity, you can imagine the temptation to think that. That they, God doesn't care for me. God's forgotten me. God doesn't want to save me. Perhaps these are words that are familiar to us. Well, it's because mankind really hasn't changed. The struggles and the wrestlings of Israel is the stress and struggles that the people of God today have as well. Especially when we face overwhelming circumstances. Circumstances that are out of our control, impossible to us. 
But it is at those times that we need to remember who is our God. We need to draw back and look again to God, to take our eyes off ourselves and look at God and say, and remember who He is. In verse 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? These are things you know, these are things you've heard. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Here is a powerful mind of our God. Our God is the everlasting God, the eternal God. He is not bound by time. He is the creator as well of the ends of the earth. He's all-powerful. He's not limited by strength. He's not limited by time. The one who spoke in everything in existence is not limited in any way or form or fashion. But you and I are limited. You and I are limited by time. You and I are limited by space. But not God. But never God. What's more, his understanding, his knowledge, we are limited in our knowledge. But his knowledge is inscrutable. They're unfathomable. That is, if you were try to understand and try to reach the depths of them, you would not be able to reach to the depths of it. God sees all things. He sees all possibilities. He knows all things. And this is our God. And he is the, this is the God who is worthy of our trust. No other thing in creation, no other person in creation compares to him. He, the incomparable God, is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of your trust. Verse 29 to 31. And here is what God gives to those who trust in him. Oh. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Here we find Israel's hope. The Almighty God gives strength to those who are weary and weak. The mightiest men are, in those days were the young men. You know, look out our, when, we, when we need stuff to be moved, we, we don't call upon, hey, all you older people, come and help us, okay? Uh, Basically, that's people my age and up, essentially. My back's hurting right now, and it's kind of tight, so don't ask me to carry anything. It's a lot of you. I can tell my, my knee's healed because I start feeling all the regular pains. Okay, again, I know I'm healed because everything, I feel everything else. But young men are some of the strongest men. You want stuff moved? Call these two young men right here. Get them moved something. Right? Move, hey, can you move stuff? Move some bookshelves. I saw, our, our, uh, saw our young pastors uh, this week moving bookshelves around. Uh, that's because they're young men, strong men. Young men don't get tired, generally. They have all sorts of energy to do stuff. But even youths, even young men grow tired and weary, right? <laughs> even they uh, can fall. They can stumble is the picture here. But, and so mankind, at its best, even falls, even grows weak. But God gives strength to us. He gives strength to, those, strength to us who are weary. He renews our strength so that we soar as if with wings of eagles. It's a beautiful picture. And the, you know, uh, our nation's uh, kind of symbol is the bald eagle. And when you watch it, it soars high up above. It is a majestic creature. Just imagine the freedom it feels, the, the strength as it flies above in the air. It's a picture of what we are, 
when we are renewed and we, uh, by the strength that God gives. We'll run and not get tired. We'll walk and not become weary. That's what, is descri- that's what describes those who put their hope in the Lord or really those who wait for the Lord. Those, this is the promise of those who wait upon God. When we encounter trials and people of faith are going to do what? Generally, we're going to go look to God in prayer, in dependence. And we're going to ask for deliverance. We're going to ask for healing. We're going to ask for, oh, Lord, please remove this trial from me. We'll ask God for strength and wisdom. But oftentimes, the answer from God will be to wait, right? We wait in our struggles with infertility. We wait in our struggles with loneliness, singleness. Uh, We wait in our search for a job to provide. We wait for many other things. We wait for the illness of a loved one to lead to its completion. We wait on many things. We wait sometimes for an answer that seems so long in coming that we are tempted to despair, do we not? And you guess we grow weary. Yes, we grow tired in the waiting. And we're tempted to doubt God. We're tempted to doubt his ability to answer. We start to think that maybe he's like us. But that's what happens when we've forgotten who our God is. Do you not know your God? Have you not learned, heard about who he is? Our God is the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of all the ends of the earth. He does not become weary or tired, and his understanding is inscrutable. Underline that verse. Our God is worthy of our hope and our trust and our waiting He will not forget you. He will not forsake you. He is not like the things of this world. He is full of strength, of wisdom, power, goodness, faithfulness to provide and fulfill his promises. Well, in conclusion... I hope, as we look through this text, you've seen a greater picture, a clearer picture again of who your God is. Just be reminded of who God is. If you're in the midst of trial, in the midst of circumstance, or when you get in those places, when you get in trials and circumstances that seem greater than who you are, impossible to control, impossible to go about, you cannot get around it, you cannot move it, it is an obstacle right before you. Do not, uh, and you are tempted to despair and doubt, and you do sometimes get doubt and despair. Then at those times, remember your God. Do not liken him to the things of this world. He is the incomparable God. Reflect upon who he is. Come back to this text, in fact. Meditate upon the scriptures. Go to Job 38 39. Go to the Psalms. And see, I love, that's why many times when you, the Psalms are great because they reflect an act of worship as man in the midst of trials will inevitably turn to God and how great he is. And that's what we must do. That's what you must do. For you know, and you have heard of God. 
and how great he is. He is the eternal God. His promises that he care, of comfort are yours. And you particularly know, as those who are in Christ, that he has already shown his faithfulness in sending Christ to die on the cross for our sins. He's already paid that which is the provision for our deliverance. And that if he is, and since he has already come once, he is going to come again as he promised. And he will complete the deliverance for us, our salvation. This was the hope of the Israelites in that, in, who received God's word in that day. And this is the hope for us today. Will you trust in him? Are you great? incomparable God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. Thank you for showing us again of who you are. Lord, forgive us for oftentimes we liken you to creation. We liken you to ourselves. We tend to look to the other things of creation as if they're greater than you. The things of this world, the rulers of this world, the nations of this world, we look to even the, the farthest stars, other religions, other idols even. Lord, these are nothing compared to you. All of them put together are nothing before you who are the creator, the eternal God and creator of the ends of the earth. Lord, you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our trust. And Father, we ask that you would cause us to be a people who continually trust in you in the face of impossible and insurmountable circumstances. Father, may you cause us to trust in you because you are great God. You are our God and we are your people. Father, we we believe in your promises. We look to the comfort and deliverance that you give us in Christ. And Lord, we wait. We wait for your deliverance. We wait for you to come again to send your son to reign on the throne, to fulfill your promises to Israel and to fulfill your promises to the church, to your people. Lord, we, we wait upon you. Help us to continue trust in you. Help us remember what a great God that you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.